Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall, and this is a special edition of the podcast where we're going to feature a deep dive into ECMO, Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, or ECPR. This is audio taken from a talk given by Andy Curry, who's a consultant intensive care doctor at Southampton, a specialist in cardiovascular and cardiothoracic intensive care, who's for the last 15 to 20 years been focusing on the use of ECMO, both in cardiothoracic surgery in adults and children, and now dipping his toes into whether or not this might be a therapy we can use at the front door or even before a patient even gets to hospital. Andy mentions an awful lot of references and all of these are in the show notes and please do go and look at the papers for yourself. And as he says, the Alfred Hospital has an excellent website. Again, you can find the links for this in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this. I'll leave it to Andy to explain the rest. My name's Andy Curry. I'm one of the consultant cardiothoracic intensive care and cardiac anesthetic consultants here in the Trust. I've been associated with UHS since 2004. What I will aim to do is touch on what's quite a rapidly developing and somewhat thorny subject in terms of developing evidence and resource limitation in terms of what is perhaps the most advanced form of cardiovascular support or cardiorespiratory support that um, we can provide. What would we like to know about in terms of the cardiothoracic uh, department here? What is actually feasible or doable? And is this a service that we should be looking to expanding? Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to give you, I think, at the end of the day, one clear cut. This is what we should be doing uh, because this is still a journey. But what I will happily do is uh, try and give you a bit of ECMO history and overview because we've probably all come from very different backgrounds. I've got uh, a little bit of personal story that I'll I'll try and share. So um, why I've got an interest. And then we'll look a little bit at the ECMO timeline discovery and how the evidence has appeared and been interpreted and and then try and have a look at where we are now. Yet it will be coupled with what I call UK real world uh, practicalities and so on. And that's got uh, aspects to do with resource accessibility, population density, where networks and where ECMO and so on is being provided. And I'll, I'll cover aspects of that sort of all the way along. I sort of want to go almost back to what I consider to be a bit of the beginning of ECMO, and this is where my personal overlap with the service begins. This is Esperanza. Esperanza was uh, the seventh child of a illegal Mexican migrant in Michigan. Effectively, she was dying of meconium aspiration with uh, pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular collapse. And this gentleman over here is Robert Bartlett or Bob Bartlett to his his friends, who's uh, been a professor of paediatric surgery at the University of Michigan uh, for many, many years. And he's still sort of emeritus professor there through a sequence of events that wouldn't meet modern day ethical standards. Effectively, this child was wound up being abandoned by the mother who thought she was going to be deported with an expectation that she was going to die that night. But having signed a consent form saying that there was uh, lab work going on, uh, looking at neonatal uh, advanced cardiorespiratory support, and effectively she got put on an ECMO machine and was the first survivor. She was lost to follow up. She got into the care system in the United States, um, but through a random chest x-ray when she was about 14, which showed an almighty amount of um, residual paraphernalia inside her chest and a bit of a history that she'd been looked after at Mott Children's, she was reunited with Bob Bartlett. Esperanza was born in the same year as me, 75, and I've had the privilege of having lunch with Esperanza at a Euro ELSO meeting, which is hosted biannually in uh, Michigan. And Bob 
is quite an inspiration and he's very much on the, the lecture circuit and he's been driving a lot of the quality control these days with a much better ethical framework. If you go back into the 60s, there had been effective uh, but poor outcome adult ECMO utilisation um, running alongside and in parallel with the early developments of the cardiopulmonary bypass circuitry in the 1950s. You also had other things where we were we were using a parent as an artificial ECMO machine, um, something called Lillehei's cross-circulation. So a lot of the development of the technology has sprung up from uh, caring for children with congenital heart disease. But effectively, with when the early bypass circuitry was uh, high risk and not particularly functional, uh, you could plumb a small child into a parent who was blood cross-matched via the femoral vessels, and you would use the parent as an extracorporeal oxygenation device with a roller pump on the venous limb, but the parent's femoral artery supplying blood flow back into the child, uh, into the aorta. And you can think about the placenta being, you know, that is the archetypal extracorporeal full organ support uh, system. Uh, artificial placentas are also being developed for extreme prematurity. So it's, a, again, a different arm and so on that we could look at. Ann Arbor then became a bit of a centre and is now the host home since 1989 of the Extracorporeal Life Support Organisation, which is an international registry database where ECMO participating centres are encouraged to report all of their data for neonates, children and adults for respiratory VA cardiovascular support and now for eCPR. Between 75 and 89, they'd been trying to apply ECMO into the adult domain, but the outcomes were so poor that ELSO actually formed to try and configure some international standards and research goals to see whether this was a futile technology, was it only applicable to the very small. My journey in terms of overlapping with predominantly the paediatric cardiac team at the University of Michigan, but then their ECMO service and so on as well, uh, takes me back to 2009. And in 2009, several things happened which started to lead to international ECMO growth. The CESAR trial was published in The Lancet, and that's a UK-based uh, from the Leicester, what was seen as the centre of ECMO for the UK, with a paediatric cardiac surgeon, Giles Peake, leading on that. And this is respiratory ECMO. It was reporting on ARDS cases uh, that were either continue to be hosted in standard non-referral centre district general hospitals or whether they were transferred to a respiratory expert centre with the potential for application of ECMO. Interestingly, not all patients were put on ECMO who were transferred, but there was a very significant improvement in the ECMO centre ARDS outcomes. And that led to this trial being uh, reported in The Lancet it's not the answer to everything. And that has then, you know, for the last decade has still sprouted more investigations, more trials, looking to see who potentially benefits. 2008, I was working as a consultant here, but 2009 to 2010, I went on sabbatical to Ann Arbor in Michigan, essentially to gain access to a very large single ventricle paediatric cardiac uh, population. They're a sort of tertiary or quaternary referral centre for hyperplastic left heart syndrome in neonates. And it meant that I could get about 10 years of exposure in a single year. But while we were there, it was the first respiratory pandemic that we encountered. Obviously much lesser than the coronavirus one, uh, but swine flu hit and uh, several things started occurring. One, 
the ECMO service at the University of Michigan did start to be impacted enough, even though they were running maybe five to six patients at once for respiratory ECMO, it did start impacting on the ability to provide standard cardiac surgery because previously, you know, the resource was maybe two to three uh, simultaneous pump runs at once. And so every system, even if you're an inventor and an innovator, has got a capacity uh, constraint. There were follow-up studies, particularly looking at mobile respiratory ECMO with the Flying Doctor Service in Australia. And so one of the key authors there is a chap called Vince Pellegrino, and you'll see his name sort of running through things. Why are we interested in the potential application of ECMO in cardiopulmonary resuscitation? We can look at a wide variety of statistics across countries, both in terms of what is actually measured, what the outcomes are, the first big distinction that you get is survival from in-hospital cardiac arrest versus out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, depending on which reference data set you look at, you'll find various outcomes. Seattle uh, will report 20% out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival, Northern Holland 21%, Norway 25%. Um, but uh, serially, we get less than 10%. So we've got room for um, improvement in our community-based CPR results. And actually, in some ways, um, as we look more into it, you know, perhaps the shift should be more towards what can we do better earlier on in the chain of survival to avoid ever needing ECMO at all. In hospital cardiac arrest, you've got the uh, ICNARC's National Cardiac Arrest Audit, which tends to run at about 20% survival, but you will find small retrospective case series with anything up to 40, 45%. I think there are two things that are important for me to look at in terms of outcome. There's absolute survival, and then there's what we should consider as a functional survival. We'll either see a lot of the papers referencing the modified ranking score of cerebral performance or the um, cerebral performance category scores with most of the studies reporting a negative outcome with anything less than a, a CPC score of two. What we want to make sure of when applying any high tech uh, piece of equipment is that you don't turn non-survivors into highly dependent survivors. Ideally, what you would like to do is turn non-survivors into fully functional survivors or highly dependent survivors into better functioning survivors. And I think those are important things to look at. The challenge, of course, is that the heart and the other organs have got much better resilience to ischemia than the brain does. So the constant possibility of cardiac survival, but brain non-survival uh, runs through everything that we're doing. And you'll all be extremely familiar with the concept of the chain of survival. You can see the effects of that in terms of education. Again, full disclosure, my father is a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivor from 2013. But the thing which made a difference was not fundamentally what we did here at the hospital, but the hands on the chest, the fact that the school teachers at the school had had BLS refresher training 10 days beforehand. And you can see how every single aspect of the chain of survival with a paediatric nurse there, a GP in attendance, the helicopter transfer bringing him here, how everything then sort of lined up. And your team and my wider team played a role in his survival. There's a part of me is like, well, if he had then been deteriorating from a right heart failure perspective, what would my thoughts have been if when he had arrived, because he'd had ROSC with the first shock, took 14 minutes for a paramedic to get to him, 34 minutes for a standard ambulance, by which time Wiltshire Air Ambulance was on scene. But uh, he'd had ROSC from the first, he was in VF, which I think as well also shows the quality of the CPR. It's obvious you don't stay in VF if your CPR is ineffective. The challenge for me then is if he had arrived here in the hospital in 
this setting would I have wanted him put on eCPR? At the moment, I would say if ECMO is being considered at this stage of the chain of survival, you're either in a designated tertiary ECMO centre or you are with somebody who is a real enthusiast or you might be part of a national or international trial. We are certainly not at the stage where this is a technology that can be universally rolled out. So some of the terminology that you see running through ECMO is the original term and is probably still used most widely, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, hinting at that this is a cardiovascular and respiratory support tool. The general branch of medicine we're talking about can be encapsulated with extracorporeal life support. So any device outside the body which is providing life support. And then ECPR is the latest four-letter acronym, which is extracorporeal or ECMO-assisted cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And that's been the, the latest addition to the, the whole armamentarium. So what is ECMO? Well, at the end of the day, it's a circuit outside of the body which is used to provide the function of the lungs and the cardiovascular system if it's what we call VA ECMO, venous to arterial ECMO, or just the lungs if it's venous ECMO which is venous withdrawal of blood and a venous return of oxygenated blood. Essentially it's a modification of the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit which is why you'll find cardiothoracic anaesthetic and intensive care minded individuals heavily involved in the deployment of the devices because at the end of the day it's it's a variation of what we use day in and day out. And it's it's made up of access pipes into a venous structure and an arterial structure for withdrawal of blood and return of blood. And then depending on which modality you're using, there'll be a series of either a pump and an oxygenator. And the oxygenator will have a sweep of gas running across it, which will oxygenate the blood. And depending on the gas flow across the membrane, will clear variable amounts of carbon dioxide. There is a, an alternate variation, which I've not got practical exposure of, but I know our general intensive care colleagues were uh, using for a period of time, which is ECCO, which is just extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, which is effectively trying to get better rest settings on ventilators in a kind of type two respiratory failure uh, setting. And that doesn't have an external pump. It just is much more like hemodialysis. Um, so you can't get the same gas exchange through one of the devices because the blood flow through it is not is not so high. Uh, it's limited to about a litre a minute. There are a number of different cannula configurations where the pipes go. ECMO really originated and grew from the support of the neonates with meconium aspiration or PPHN. When you're dealing with such small patients, it, it depends a little bit whether you're going to institute ECMO as part of a post-cardiotomy scenario, so cardiovascular collapse after the patient's had maybe open heart surgery, and so the chest is already open, or whether you're initiating it for respiratory support. And if it's for respiratory or the chest hasn't been opened already, then we tend to use a carotid artery and the jugular vein. The carotid artery is temporarily effectively sacrificed and so they rely on an intact circle of Willis for cerebral blood flow. So of course neurological injury is a potential either from embolic phenomenon or from hypoperfusion. If the chest's already been open you can usually get better flow, better return 
through putting the cannulas in bigger pipes. Same type of configuration as a bypass circuit, so draining the atrium and returning it directly into the A water. The configurations can change as the patient size changes. And by the time you get above maybe 35 to 40 kilos, you're looking at the possibility of peripheral ECMO via femoral uh, vessels. Again, depending on the size of the patient, you may not be able to get what we call full flow or total replacement of their native cardiac output, but you may be able to supplement their native flow and so on as well. So the cannula configuration comes into play based on what it is that you're trying to achieve, veno-venous or veno-arterial, whether or not they've had heart surgery already and the physical size of the patient. By the time you get to adult size, you can get full flow or very close to full flow through a groin cannulation with right femoral vein, right femoral artery. You will typically be accessing the right atrium just with a very long venous cannula. And things like TOE are extremely helpful for the placement of of those uh, cannulas. And it's this application, which is the one which is getting utilised through um, typically percutaneous or a, a cut down assisted percutaneous approach, because this should be quite rapidly uh, deployable. This is a picture from a Paris group where they've been doing pre-hospital ECMO. It was their advice, whereas, say, there's a big Australian group that comes out of the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne um, that advocate percutaneous only with serial dilation. The Paris group said, felt that in the field, that if you did a cut down, identified the vessels, but then did a remote cannulation uh, so that you can still tunnel the, the lines because bleeding is a big problem with these patients. And anything that you can do to put something compressive around the cannulae can have a local tamponading effect and, and reduce your overall blood loss. Uh, the other thing that you can see here is what's called a recirculation line or a recirculation limb. You've got this pipe here going into the femoral artery, but because it's occlusive or near occlusive, you have to protect the distal perfusion and so on as well. And so within four hours, the advice is that you've got a anti-grade flow cannula down to that limb as well. The alternative is if you're going on slightly more electively is that the surgeon can put a side graft onto the femoral artery and then cannulate the graft instead of the artery directly, in which case you get both retrograde flow up the aorta and anti-grade flow down the femoral artery. We have had neurological or neuroischemic damage from femoral cannulation here. It is certainly not a benign therapy at all. They're big pipes in what are often quite vasoconstricted vessels, and they've had a period of hypoperfusion. So you've got vascular territories that are already hypoperfused and at risk. Limb surveillance is a big thing. The next question then is, what is actually possible? I'm going to subdivide this into kind of pre-2019, as everything's developing along, and then pandemic and what's gone on in terms of the actual first randomised control trials since 2019. The first big signal that ECMO for CPR might have a benefit came out of Taiwan. It was a in-hospital cardiac arrest study. That has then been attempted to be reproduced and then the results of that type of in-hospital scenario uh, try to extend into the out-of-hospital population and so on as well. So that led to something called the CHIA trial. So that's Pellegrino's group in Melbourne. They had much more access to ECMO because of uh, developing a mobile ECMO Australian Flying Doctor H1N1 service. So that lit their research touch paper. The issue with the CHIA trial is that it's not ECMO alone. It's a bundle of care. The bit that you guys have probably had your eyes on is what the ED in San Diego have done, where they've done emergency department physician implemented ECMO in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And that's a a small group, but is uh, very much ongoing and is a real enthusiast centre. 
You've then got a group in Paris who have latched on to what they've got already as a mobile pre-hospital intensive care unit service. And the the key thing here is that they've applied pre-hospital eCPR, but in an extremely high population density environment. Short travel times and rapid implementation was there. And then I've been involved with EuroELSO. So the European branch of the ELSO organisation since its inception in 2011. And one of the big spin-offs then from ECMO application is what a group in Spain have been doing, um, which is ECMO-assisted organ donation, which is actually out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient comes in. And you've got two separate teams. You know, your red phone goes off. The resus team gets activated and they lead the medical management of the patient. If they get to the stage where they declare the patient dead, there's a five minute uh, hands off period, at which point the ECMO organ retrieval team will come in, will cannulate the femoral vessels, put a balloon occlusive device into the aorta so that they don't re-oxygenate the heart or the brain, but they then reperfuse the intra-abdominal organs. That was as part of a the fact that Spain had an opt-out organ donation register. Effectively, what they would then do is they would reperfuse the intra-abdominal organs, put a sheet up to nipple line, bring the family in to say their goodbyes, and then go off to do non-heartbeating organ donation of liver, kidneys, pancreas, small bowel, etc. Um, an improvement in organ survival rate within that. I have to say that the first time that that was mentioned by a nephrologist at the ELSO meeting, the intake of breath and so on was extreme. But again, this is these are things which perhaps we need to be thinking about. It was fascinating between 2012 or 2013 when this Barcelona nephrologist mentioned that and the next two meetings, it was America had picked it up somewhere else had picked it up and then Cambridge picked it up probably eight to ten years later. So the the first one that lit the touch paper was this one in Taiwan, 2008. They started reporting improved outcomes in in-hospital cardiac arrest that were ECMO resuscitated and they were reporting odds ratios of about 0.5. We're talking though about a thousand-ish screened cardiac arrest patients of whom 40 or 50 wind up on ECMO. That actually for the big registry trials is quite a high percentage. And you'll look at the biggest registry from the US at the moment has got sort of 330,000 cardiac arrest episodes with a thousand of them having eCPR as some form of their uh, resuscitation. Not all successfully. In enthusiastic centres in Taiwan, Taiwan follow up, South Korea, Italy and Japan, are running in the 15 to 30% survival. That, unfortunately, was not being fully reproduced in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest population. And in that era, you know, uh, 2000 to 2015, you've got one centre in Germany um, reporting 36%, but most of the others are not dissimilar to the less than 10% survival for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the early adopters, even the enthusiasts and even in experienced centres did not have sudden immediate success. We get to the mid 2010s. This then is the CHIA trial. So this is based out of the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Again, Pellegrino's group building on the mobile VV ECMO success that they'd had in H1N1. This reports small numbers, but really good results. It's an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest study, um, but it's combining multiple things. It's the introduction of mechanical CPR, a Lucas or Lucas-like device. It's temperature, targeted temperature management with deliberate hypothermia. It's early uh, consideration of ECMO. 
And it's a real drive to find reversible causes and get early reperfusion of damaged vascular territories, whether that's percutaneous coronary intervention or pulmonary thrombectomy. The results they got, though, that they published are outstanding. 54% survival with good cerebral performance category, you know, one or two. However, they were recruiting for quite a long time. They got 26 patients who were eligible, 14 of whom went home. So we're still not talking about, you know, enormous multi-centre trials with uh, non-biased or, you know, the potential for non-biased reporting. While this was all going on as well, you've got the, the French team. They were recruiting quite big numbers and they started to report their findings from their pre-hospital emergency eCPR programme that they'd set up. And they were looking in particular at what influenced outcome. And the things that they had, it was mean low flow duration. Basically, if they can if they can make sure that the low flow period is less than 20 minutes, they were starting to report slightly better outcomes. The key thing which changed, I think they had two periods of reporting, was how quickly they got teams on scene. And to start off with, they started really espousing the virtues of this. So this is an ECMO team in a specialised ambulance. They're activated by an on-site physician and starts to report successful deployment in museums, supermarkets, patients' homes, and even on the metro. It clearly, though, is very resource hungry, and it already bolts onto their established mobile ICU team, and it may not be practical for all. What's very interesting is if you talk to Dr. Lemo directly now, he will hold his hands up and say, we massively overstepped things. We were using it in places where we shouldn't. And he is not quite such the enthusiast that he was eight years ago. And there's a much greater focus now on appropriate patient selection into the more modern era and then the influence of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, um, since 2019, these are the things which have gone on. You've had the pandemic. We've got the latest version of the UK resus uh, guidelines. We then had three randomised control trials, and these are the only randomised control trials looking at um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and uh, eCPR. So the arrest trial was 2020. This is, uh, again, an enthusiastic expert centre. So the arrest trial is single centre randomised control trial based in Minnesota. So they've already got an established ECMO programme in support of cardiac and respiratory support. They asked the following question. In adults suffering an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, if they have an initial rhythm of VF or pulseless VT, does putting them on ECMO improve survival to hospital discharge? This is small numbers. They recruited adult patients with an initial rhythm of VF or pulseless VT, and their entry into the group was they had no ROSC after three shocks. But if they had ROSC after four shocks, that didn't exclude them if they were going in and out of cardiac arrest. They needed to have a body habitus able to support mechanical CPR, and that is a big consideration. If you have got super morbidly obese patients, their vasculature may not be easily accessible and the pipe work that you can get in may be insufficient to cover their, their you know their total body mass they also had an estimated transport time from call and location of uh, less than 30 minutes so if they were going to be more than 30 minutes away from uh, where the downtime period initiated they would be excluded the issue with this was that they had an intention to recruit and treat an awful lot more patients 36 patients were assessed more than 30 patients were enrolled and randomly assigned so they wound up with 15 in the ECPR arm what they wound up doing was that they actually stopped the trial 
early because they felt that it was already showing strong evidence of efficacy. They had six out of 14 survivors in the ECMO arm and only one out of 15 survivors in the conventional CPR arm. Great signal, but it falls into that category of yet another trial which doesn't reach statistical significance and as well-meaning as it is, can you apply this to the other 8 billion people around the world? Even though that had been published, the ELSO interim guideline in 2021 stated that there are no randomised published control trials comparing outcomes of ECCPR to CCPR. But they comment on the increasing evidence base within the observational studies, but note a high likelihood of bias from heterogeneous studies and very wide reporting outcomes, uh, survival ranging from 15 to 50%. And they summarised it as saying, you know, at the time being, we don't know whether the number of neurologically injured patients will increase with growing utilisation of eCPR. And so that then did steer the subsequent trials in terms of what meaningful outcome was going to be, not just survival to discharge or or transfer. And so future trials, the advice is, should um, endeavour to report neurological outcomes as well as as mortality. The next one is... um, Now, the Prague uh, one was the the biggest of the RCTs and included certainly an intention to treat 360 something patients. Their question was, um, does early and again, it was like a composite inclusion. Does early intra arrest transport, so getting to the hospital quickly and use of eCPR and invasive assessment. So getting to PCI, pulmonary thrombectomy and so on quickly improve neurological outcome at 180 days. So again, very specific sort of set of questions and and concerns. The overall author's conclusion was that actually compared to good quality conventional CPR, there was no significant improvement in survival with a neurologically favourable outcome compared with standard resuscitation. That said, that trial has gone on to have a variety of secondary analyses where they look at 30-day neurological outcome. There is a signal towards improvement. And again, that gets latched on to. This then comes on to the inception trial. The inception trial was um, a Dutch-based study, and it was a multi-centre trial, 10 different units. And um, they were recruiting out-of-hospital cardiac arrests with um, you know, a, a variety of stratification um, components. It had to pause for the pandemic, so it had two recruitment um, components, um, and they were very specific in their inclusion criteria. It needed to be a witnessed arrest with immediate bystander CPR or within five minutes and a shockable rhythm on emergency medical services uh, arrival. And the location of where the eCPR was delivered uh, did vary. Some it was pre-hospital in a mobile unit and some it was in an ECMO receiving centre. Ultimately, again, this is a randomised trial, but it's unblinded and it's small numbers. Uh, 2,107 patients were screened 113 were included for randomization. 44 patients then got dropped out for logistical reasons. And so you can see how quickly, again, you just sort of cut away. The ultimate reporting is only a handful of all the potential patients that we see. They wound up with 42 patients on eCPR and 52 patients still in the trial who were the comparators who had conventional CPR. And the conclusions of this one was that good quality conventional CPR and extracorporeal CPR have got similar effects on survival 
with a favourable outcome at 30 days in patients with refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest caused by an initial ventricular arrhythmia. And effectively, one of the big things in this trial, I think, is that it shows that those patients who've got a shockable rhythm at the beginning, if you can get them to a hospital, they are the ones who may still get ROSC in the hospital. And so again, this does not answer all the questions and so on for me. If we want to look at what people are doing practically and where we might go, I have looked to get the eCPR guidance cards that come from the Alfred Hospital in. And in the same sort of way that we've set up ALS teams around a patient, if they're going to do ECMO initiation, either in a controlled or an eCPR way, they've now got a dedicated team with flashcards for what everybody's role is and their responsibility. They're really worth looking at. They're freely available. Again, the Alfred is very generous with what they're doing and encouraging others to sort of uh, join on uh, on board. What I want to highlight here, though, is a change in a way of thinking. Up until 2019, on the back of the team leader card and published on their website, were a variety of exclusion criteria. So reasons why they wouldn't go down an eCPR route. But effectively, what the Alfred have done is they've flipped this around and they've started to analyse their local data much more rigorously. They'd identified signals of worsening outcome with age, severe comorbidities, the unknown duration of no flow time, none of it's rocket science, a non-shockable rhythm at initial presentation, and if your total duration of resuscitation prior to ECMO in, uh, implementation was more than an hour. So those were the signals from within their data set. What they've done is now published on their website what they're using as inclusion criteria with some very useful data alongside it. They've said these are the things that they now want to know if there's an eCPR potential referral. What is the age of the patient and the time in minutes between the first reported arrest time and the ambulance being called and the decision to in initiate ECMO? So that's not time to get it on. They've said if you really don't know the age of the patient, hazard a good guess, because what they've found is that with increasing age, you need shorter and shorter periods of time for it to be effective. So they've come up with a composite of 100 minutes. If you don't know, then you can just say we need this to be within a 60 minute time period. It needs to be a witnessed cardiac arrest because otherwise the no flow time is unknown. Shockable initial rhythm, bystander CPR within five minutes and no known end stage disease. And effectively, what they've shown is that if you can fulfill all five of those criteria, that's when you go into the survival arm. Their eCPR group, if they've got all five at the time of that referral, they'll get a 46% eCPR CPC one or two outcome survival to discharge. You lose even one of them, the survival goes down to 12%. If you lose more than one of them, there are no recorded survivors. And I think actually as a pragmatic start tool for any consideration, that's a really, really good practical way of beginning a conversation. There are specialist circumstances where this might not apply. If the patient's in cold water immersion and they are already hypothermic or certain toxicology situations where they've been reported small case series of, of survival. The next thing then is even if we take that and we look, we sort of say, right, where in the UK at the moment is ECMO actually occurring? So where are the centres and what types and groups are going on in terms of an understanding of what is our local capacity and capability is here. 
There are five adult respiratory ECMO centres around the country that you probably know. Our local one being at Guy's and Tommy's. You've got Papworth in Cambridge, the Royal Brompton, Leicester, which is the traditional sort of central centre, and then you've got Withenshaw in Manchester. ECMO is also going on at each of the cardiac transplantation centres, either paediatric or adult. In many ways, these are the centres that are probably best placed to provide an eCPR service because they'll be also making decisions about destination VAD therapies or you know, putting people onto longer term ventricular assist device and so on. And they've already got embedded systems. Two of those, Glasgow Golden Jubilee and GOSH, are paediatric, uh, are doing paediatric. The others are adult centres. Actually, uh, the Glasgow centre is their separate sites. You've got the Golden Jubilee and you've got six children's. And then we fall into this arm. It's mandated if you are a congenital cardiac centre doing paediatric cardiac surgery, you must have an, an ECMO programme. So we've got a standalone post-cardiotomy PICU-delivered ECMO programme in support of our PEDS cardiac surgery. Because we have the devices on site, and because we're an adult cardiothoracic centre, although not a respiratory ECMO centre, on rare occasions, ECMO will be used to support a post-cardiotomy patient or an adult cardiomyopathy in preparation for transport to one of the VAD or transplant centres. We are not, however, commissioned or resourced to extend that beyond extreme circumstances and so on at the moment. Uh, to put it in context, it takes out each time we run one adult patient, it usually takes out 25% of our cardiac surgical operating capacity. So it's a very resource intensive thing. The whole of this topic is it's very easy to go down any rabbit hole that you want. Absolutely any rabbit hole. I'd love to be able to sit here and say, this is the definitive trial that tells us everything that we need to know. And that just, it just is not the case. And I remain an interested enthusiast who is resource constrained, and we are not part of a big trial and so on at the moment. And I do not believe that the trials that are yet published have answered even the majority, yet, let alone all of the questions that, that, that we need answering. Are we going to be seeing uh, mobile eCPR cardio help units on the street corners? Not yet. Thank you very much. Thank you.